The Latter-day Lives podcast is not owned or operated by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any opinions expressed or implied in this recording are solely those of the host and guests and not of any specific organization, unless otherwise stated. Hello, friends. Welcome to episode number 145 of the Latter-day Lives podcast. I'm your host, Sean Rapier. Thank you so much for checking in again with us this week. My guest on the show is just an incredible man, Loki Mulholland. Not only is a very talented filmmaker, but comes from a family with a history of activism uh, in the civil rights movement. We'll talk about all that and in the incredible work that he is doing as well. And this week in my Latter-day Life, I'll talk a little bit about getting uncomfortable. It's all coming up. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's conversation. Today, my guest on the Latter-day Lives podcast is a filmmaker. He is an author, he is an activist, and has an amazing, not only his story, but his family's story, Loki Mulholland. Welcome to the show. Oh, thank you for having me. I am so excited. We got connected through uh, Michael B., Michael Berkland, our mutual friend, and he was just raving about you. And in doing a little bit of homework, I completely understand why. Uh, but before we get into your life, normally we start off talking about your childhood, but we're going to do things a little bit differently. I want to hear a little bit about your mother and who she is, and then let's get to know you, because I think she's going to be kind of a a lens for who you are. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. You know, and, I, and I'm used to that. I, <laughs> that's actually, um, you know, to tell a little backstory on that, my uh we were at the home of Medgar Evers. Uh, he was the first of the civil rights activists that was assassinated in uh, mm. Jackson, Mississippi. We're there with his daughter, Marion Wright Edelman, my mom, Jerry Mitchell. And and there's this like, you know, this kind of formed up this receiving line of sort. And my Rena Evers is on my right. My mother's on my left. And this lady comes up and, oh, Rena, I can't believe it. It's you. And, and you know, it hugs and all that. And then she comes to me and she's like, who are you? <laughs> now... I could say, well, I'm Loki, right? Now, I've already done a couple of films, right, mind you. Yeah. So, you know, but, sure. uh, well, I'm Loki. And I was like, you know what? The next question is going to be, yes, who are you? Because they can't, <laughs> because in the South, they got to be able to place you. Yeah, sure. Right. <laughs> and I said, I said, oh, well, I'm, I'm, I'm Joan's son. Joan, I didn't <laughs> see you. Oh, my gosh. How are you doing? It moves on. It, and you could just, I mean, it was just like, I, I was, Oh, gosh. Oh, that and, is so funny. And Rena leans over and says, don't worry, Loki. I don't have a name either. I'm just <laughs> Meg- I'm just Megger's daughter. And, and we talked about that. You know, yeah. our parents are these, you know, icons. My mom's mugshot has been, you know, called yeah. one of the most iconic um, in American history. Sure. And... Uh, you know, you live in this shadow and, and, and you try to escape it. And then eventually you kind of come around to realize that uh, you have the, you know, you, you're there to honor it. You're there to to continue the legacy, to preserve it and to um, expand on it. And and yeah. so that's who I am. I mean, and uh, I think you're carrying it forward. I want to just say before we start, I mean, I, I understand I, to the extent that I can, I understand that. 
but we're going to jump into a lot of things that you yeah. are doing to kind of grab that legacy and carve it out in your own way, in a very different way than what your mom yeah. did. And so as much I as think I, it's yeah. awesome. I appreciate that. And as much as I tried to escape it, you know, it's, 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 it's become my life. Yeah. Um, and you, you eventually get to the point where you just kind of embrace it and accept it. And, um, but, uh, my mom is, is Joan Trump Power Mulholland. Um, she is the lady in the famous, uh, Jackson Woolworth sit-in photo. Most people have seen it in their history books. And she said, yeah. She says, it's a shame that the most famous photo of me is at the back of my head. Um, <laughs> but there she is at that counter with that angry mob behind her, that seething white mass of, you know, of youth. Uh, and they're pouring stuff on her head. And it's just, it's, it's, it's just capturing this one moment in time um, that was yeah. you know, three or four hours at this lunch counter, where she said, quite honestly, I thought we were all going to die. Um, she mm. talks about an out-of-body out experience with this. Um, which by the time she was 19 years old, she had been involved in about three dozen sit-ins and protests when she joined the Freedom Rides. Um, appropriate to talk about as yeah, appropriate as, right now with John Lewis. Passing. John Lewis having passed, right? Yeah, and of course yeah. she knew John Lewis. Um, and but uh, how how uh, did she get into the civil rights movement? Right. I mean, she here she was. You know, now was she was she living in the South at the time? Oh, she's never left the South. Okay, so she's always lived in the South. Here she is, a young white lady yeah. in the South, not the most fashionable at that time to jump into the civil rights oh, movement. Oh, gosh, no. You know? no. I mean, white young ladies had other things that they were preoccupied with. And it's dangerous, you know, well, flat out dangerous. There weren't enough white men jumping in, much less white young women. Right. But, uh, but so well, tell us well, how she well, got white women were the embodiment of why you had segregation to begin with. It was to protect right. our white Southern women yeah, from yeah. these black beast rapists. You know, that's, you know, the term sure. that's used. And uh, she says, you know, I don't need this protection. I don't need your help. <laughs> Actually, Duke University, when she joined the, uh, the sit-ins in, uh, in Durham, they literally thought she was mentally ill and gave her tests. Because they couldn't imagine why a white Southern woman would do this. Uh, wow. She wasn't amused by that and parted ways with Duke. But her story really begins when she's 10 years old. And she, she travels down to Georgia, this little old logging town called Oconee. Not the resort, but the mm. logging town. And uh, to visit her grandmother. And they would do this every summer. They would drive down to, to Georgia from, from Arlington, Virginia. And this year, a friend... You know, the, the friend down there, uh, uh, Mary, um, dares her, you know, to go to, you know, what we call the black quarters, the black part of town. Mm. They had a different word yeah. for it, began with the N. Of course. N. Um, and and mind you, my, my mom didn't know the N-word was a bad word until she was 13. Uh, sure. So it was as common. It was very common dirt. in that time. Yeah. But, they, but so they go on this dare. Now, of course, grandma said you can't go there. and That's why they went. But (laughs) they go there and these two little white girls walk into this black part of town and and everyone disappears. She says it was like they just almost just evaporated behind Mm. the clotheslines, behind their houses, you know, know, closing the doors and the shutters. No one wanted to be seen seeing these two little white girls. It's just just the the power that these two little white girls had over adults. Because if – something happened to them. Right. And the police 
you know, went to the black quarters and said, you know, hey, you know, what's going on here? What's happened? Like, did anyone, any of you see him? And if someone said, yeah, I saw them, well, now they're going to have a lynching. That's all wow. they're looking for. And that's wow. the power that they had. So she, she's seeing this. And they come to this, this schoolhouse, the black schoolhouse. And it's, it's something, you know, straight out of Hollywood, if you will. You know, it's the one room shack, not a lick of paint on it, no glass in the windows, a pot belly stove for heat. The, the outhouse mm-hmm. is out back, the, the pump for water, no playground, no grass, just dirt and stone piles of which the building is resting on. Um, when I talk with students uh, here in Utah, I, I, when I describe this to them, I said, imagine your entire, your entire school in this one room. And they just, it just blows their mind. Um, yeah. I said, now, understand, uh, the white students had a brand new brick school. And it was the nicest building in town. And actually, nearly 70 years later, it still is the nicest building in town. Mm-hmm. No longer a school. It's now, it's, it's actually a, a, a nursing home, probably for the students that were attending the school seventy years ago. Yeah, um, right. But uh, that was the white school. And to the kids, when I when I when I tell them the story, I was like, "Is that fair?" And they're like, "Well, no. It's very obvious to children." Yeah. Um, and it was obvious to my mom, and she said, "You know this." This is separate but equal. This is this is not right. And she said that she said to herself, it rattled her soul, mm. um, and that she said, you know, this is wrong. I'm going to do something about it. Amazing. I mean, you can see her convictions right mm-hmm. then. Now that that starts to make a lot of sense. So she grows up with this passion after that experience. Uh, how did your grandparents react when she's out? Um, you know, and and she's riding the buses with the protesters and she's sitting at the lunch counter. How did her parents respond to this? Well, you know, my grandfather was from Iowa. He was the only foreigner in the family because he was a Yankee. Um, my grandmother, you know, to her dying day was a segregationist. Really? Um, yeah. And so, so, so my, my grandfather was also, he, he was a government bureaucrat. So he, he believed, he didn't believe in this sort of, you know, guerrilla warfare of the civil rights movement. He believed that it should come from the top down. The argument was, well, look how long ago Brown versus Board of Education was, and we're still waiting. Um, mm. My grandmother was just, you know, you know, what would the neighbors think? Uh, you know, this is yeah. wrong. And uh, there, there's, there's even, there's even letters written from the prisons to my grandmother chastising her for being a bad mother that how wow. could you how could you allow your daughter your southern daughter to run around with these negro bucks right mm. and my grandmother doesn't defend my mom she defends herself oh and my we, gosh and we, and we actually have the letters um okay that's amazing and so you know, my and a lot of people ask, well, what what drove your mom? Uh, because we can all kind of look at this, you know, look at the inequalities, but what motivated her? And um, my mother says, well, it's it's what she learned in church, um, she's Presbyterian, mm-hmm. and that, you know, do unto others you haven't done unto you, and you've done the least of these, my brethren, you've done unto me. She says, you know, all this good King James stuff, as she likes to say, you know, the, the, go, you know, the golden rule. She said, we were hypocrites. We would talk about it in church. We would puff ourselves up, but then mm. 
in the real world, we never practiced what we preached. Right. Yeah. So tell us where you were born. I was born and raised in Arlington, Virginia. I mean, I'm a Southerner. Um, and, uh, you know, Arlington, Arlington was nice. I mean, um, it was, you know, we're right outside DC. So you have all the, the culture from that and all the historical sites and these sort of yeah, things. And I love Arlington. Yeah. Um, Beautiful place. You know, in, in, in my film, The Uncomfortable Truth, I talk about how our school was very diverse, our elementary school, but our mm. neighborhood was very, very white. Yeah. Um, and it was just, it's just kind of just the way things were. But but growing up, I, you know, we had a lot of civil rights people come to the house. We're probably the only house in Arlington, um, probably to this day, that has a portrait of Jomo Kenyatta, who's the first president of Kenya, um, because my brother is named Jomo. Oh, wow. After Jomo Kenyatta. Um, you know, so j- j- just, just so people understand, you know, so my name is Loki, and I guess I'm the lucky one. But um, <laughs> my, my mom was a single mom raising five boys. Wow. Um, there's four years and three months that separates the oldest from the youngest. Wait, because, what? Because my brother and I are identical twins. Wow. As the youngest. Now, he is the youngest. Technically, my brother is. Yeah. Um, you know, and as a twin, you, you, you're lord over that, of course. By minutes, um, yeah. Of yes. course. Um, but you have Bino, Django, Jomo, Loki, and Geronimo. Five boys. Oh, boy. So yeah. she's raising five sons by herself. Now, as mm-hmm. you were growing up, were you aware of kind of your mom's place in history? Not really. I mean, we knew about the photographs. Uh, we didn't know about the mugshot. That didn't. That was under lock and key in Mississippi Department of Archives for years. Mm. Um, I, I didn't even know about it until I think uh, Tanahisi Coates uh, wrote about it in the Atlantic. Um, oh, really? Wow. But, you know the the photos for us. It was kind of you know th- these are kind of like your mom's like your parents, uh, you know college pictures and stuff. And it's just like, look at the funny looking glasses and the fashion. And it's like, Oh yeah, the sit-ins. Yeah. Okay. Now we got that. No big deal. Sure. Um, but we knew, we knew the sit-in photo was famous. We just didn't know, you know, the full, you know, you know, ramifications of this. We didn't know that my mother was on the clan's most wanted list, for example. Um, wow. Yeah. So how scary is that? I mean, that's, yeah. that's a good thing to protect your children from not letting them, your children know that the clan is after you. Well, not, you know, not, not when we were growing up, but I mean, back when yeah. back, back in the day, I mean, they almost succeeded in killing her. But, um, but you know, our our upbringing wasn't normal for you know white kids in Virginia, probably white kids anywhere, uh, because of my mom and what she tried to instill in us and and the circles of influences that were around us with civil rights people and such, uh, you know, it, it would get to a point where I'd, probably in junior high, when my mom would say, Hey, well, you know, Bishop Desmond Tutu's coming to town. Do you want to go listen to him? Well, yeah. <laughs> you know, that became an instinctive thing to say yes to. Did your mom stay involved as you were growing up in the uh, civil rights movement? Uh, she wasn't, uh, you know, active day to day. You know, and and a lot of civil rights people, um, you know, moved on once the movement kind of faded um, into kind of more bureaucracy. Um, My mother saw herself as a student in the movement, as part of the student movement, which is the um, an organization called SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, which which you know John Lewis was a chairman of at one point, uh, one of the founders. And 
so when she graduated from college, you know, from a from a from a a black college, she was the first white student there. Um, she uh, she felt that 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 was her time to move on to the next chapter of her life. Now, gotcha. there were still things that she'd be involved in, and that was in 1964, mind you. Yeah, um, she would go down for the summit of Montgomery March in 65. She would participate in the part of the. Um, what you call it, the the uh, James Meredith, you know, March. Yeah. Uh, so there was all these different things, and then um, the Smithsonian would ask her for certain things, you know, like you know, hey, can you get us access to this or that or this? And uh, but but when anytime there was people that would come to town, like Stokely Carmichael, these old mm. friends, you know, she would she would <clears throat> she, she brought me along and me and my brother to meet Stokely Carmichael. So here is the most feared man and you know a black man and you know to white america and uh you know getting down on one knee and, and kneeling down and just talking face to face with two little you know freckle-faced white boys um, wow you know with the nation of islam surrounding him yeah sure and, uh, but he was a friend what um, an amazing what an amazing life growing up loki and obviously you were instilled with a very different set of values than I'm sure a lot of your friends were. Growing up, we actually had a lot of, uh, there was a lot of refugees that came into Virginia from Southeast Asia. Um, What's commonly known as the boat people from Vietnam and Cambodia and such. Uh, And so those, those were our friends. And we, uh, there there came a point in time where Many of our, you know, friends, white friends, were harassing the Southeast Asian friends when they would walk home from school and mm. and bully them and such. And so we, you know, at least me and I know a couple of my brothers would do this, but um, we would escort them either home or to our house as a safe harbor until the bullies left. And we wow. did get roughed up for it, and such. Um, and these were by by our white peers, our white friends who we had known before the Southeast Asian kids even showed up. We just wanted to have friends. It was the right um, thing to do. It was because it was the right thing to do. Yeah. It yeah. was just, but there wasn't something that like my mom sat down and said, Hey, by the way, you know what? And when I did sit-ins and so you should be doing this. Yeah. Um, and my brother, my twin brother was a little frivolous with it, I guess at a point. So like in high school, uh, <laughs> they, they had a school dance. Well, the, the principal happened to be Dr. Jawardi, who was a former nun who was now a principal mm. of a, public elementary school she thought the kids were dancing a little too close and uh <laughs> turned up the lights or turned on the lights and the students had a sit-in until they would turn down the light turn off the lights so the compromise became this you know we'll just dim the lights and dr jawardi is telling my mom this story later and said well when i found out there was a sit-in i knew exactly whose kid was involved so Oh, I love that you have that family history. Well, tell us a little bit about yourself. What were you like when you were growing up? Like, what were you into? Were you into athletics? Were you into film back uh, then? Well, yeah, yeah, I was into film back then. I, I wrote my first screenplay when I was in the sixth grade because I wanted to uh, uh, make myself the hero and kiss uh, Michelle LeMay. Um, <laughs> you know, so, uh, we, we, you know, we, I, I, uh, friends and I, we would, go down to the ravine and build these dams and the creeks. And then we would blow them up with cans of WD-40. You know, we'd shoot bottle rockets at, <laughs> at bicyclers and stuff. I mean, sure. played, played video games in the Atari 800 and uh, watch movies on VHS and Laserdisc. 
Um, you and I had a similar upbringing. I don't know how old you are, but you're 48. Describing <laughs> I am, I, I am 48 as well. So you're, you're describing yeah. my childhood as well. Logan. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Um, yeah. You know, but you know, we played soccer and football, you know, and those sort of things. But, uh, you know, my, yeah. my love was always film and I always knew I wanted to be a filmmaker. So at some point you left Virginia. What, uh, what's that story for, of you leaving Virginia and heading out to, uh, to Utah? Well, I, I learned later in life that uh, after a couple of years of marriage that your wife determines where you live. Um, <laughs> that's pretty much it. My wife is from Blanding. So she's uh, south, the southwest, southeast corner, the yeah. four corners region. So she's a Blandonite. And, um, and How so, did you guys but, meet? Uh, at church, as a matter of yeah. fact. Uh, she was a nanny back in Virginia. And uh, I, was, uh, I had just joined the church a year before. Uh, you know, I'm a convert to the church. Yeah, we would um, love to hear that conversion story. Uh, well, so you know, my my story is unique, and it actually ties into the civil rights movement. So, um, mm. in a very unique way, uh, I grew up with several Mormons, Latter Day Saints. Um, yeah, back then yeah. they were Mormons. We'll back then they were Mormons. Okay, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Put it into context. Uh, they, they were on our soccer team. My dad was the soccer coach and such, and. Um, and mind you, my parents, they divorced when I think I was like three years old um, mm. or separated when I was three. I don't know how official the divorce was. I don't remember what year. But um, my dad only lived a block and a half away. And so, oh, wow. uh, so he was very involved in our lives and uh, phenomenal, phenomenal individual. And, and he's been arrested several times for protesting nuclear testing in Nevada. So, you know, it's, it's all in the genes. Um, but he was our soccer coach, and, and there's three three key players in our team were were were, were LDS and um, still are, and yeah. <laughs> they uh, you know w- when the game was on a got rained out on a Saturday and it was on a sun you know played on Sunday they didn't show up, and and they didn't have birthdays after they were like eight years old or twelve years old. I mean all these sort of goofy <laughs> sort of things you hear now. Uh, I and, love it. So Johnny Keegan, actually, I just talked to Johnny today, as a matter of fact. Um, he, uh, you know, he was my, my best friend since kindergarten, all the way through mm-hmm. high, all the way through high school. And he goes on his mission to France. And I'm like, what's he doing in like the jungles of France? You know, a mission. That's, that's just kind of my, my, you know, you know, my, my, my idea of what a mission is, uh, you know, something out of like Mosquito Coast or something. Yeah, and, sure. You hear it's, the word mission, it's very exotic. Oh, yeah. yeah oh, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, but, you know, what, what does he believe that he's taking two years out of his life to go do? And, and yeah. all, all of my friends started going, you know, you know Zane Kirby and, and uh, Travis Tall and, and uh, Philip Clark. And so it's like, wow, where, oh, what's going on here? Uh, Johnny said two things before he left on his mission. One, he told his dad, I think Loki's the last guy on the face of the earth that will ever get baptized. <laughs> and then he turned to his sister and said, whatever you do, don't go out with him. <laughs> so uh, on his mission, I yeah. da- dated his sister. Yeah. Um, and then when he came back, uh, I started asking him about the gospel. And uh I, I was never comfortable talking about religion and such. Now I, I, I had, you know, kind of floated around a little bit, you know, vacation Bible school type stuff. And then, you know, when my dad, you know, re reactivated in, in the Catholic church, I don't know what term you would use except for reactivated, sure. um, came back to the Catholic church. Um, uh, you know, I would go to church with him. I really liked the order and the structure of, of the Catholic church. I found yeah. peace in that. Um, and, 
But uh, yeah, I knew there was something missing. And so when Johnny came home, I felt prepared to talk to him. Now, in the meantime, I would, I would, have, <laughs> um, I'd always go ask people, yeah, what, what'd you hear about, what, what do you know about the Mormons? Right. And they'd tell me <laughs> the weirdest stuff, which is what I always like to hear. Yeah. But they'd always say, but you know what? They're the nicest, kindest, hard, hardest working people you'll ever meet. Mm. It's like every single time I was like, wow. So I would go back to the, to the Keegan's house and, and, uh, and Johnny's dad, Mike, you know, would always have me over for, I never forget this. They always had me over for Sunday dinner. And there was always two other people at the table who actually happened to have name badges on the same time I would be oh, there for Sunday funny. dinner. I had no idea that they were there what for me. What a crazy coincidence, Loki. It's crazy. <laughs> I always have to watch some church film before I was allowed to, before, you know, his sister and I would be able to go out for a walk, right? You know? Yeah, sure. And we couldn't, I couldn't take her to go get ice cream or anything like that, but we'd go for a walk. But, um, and I would ask these sort of questions like, so what about this? What about that? So it's kind of this sort of passive investigation. Um, but then Johnny gets home. <laughs> Actually, I said to Mike one night, uh, so they're, they're gather around the table for prayer. And, but they would quote the scripture first, something, you know, like, you know, some, some, you know, what was it called? Scripture. Sure. Scripture mastery or whatever. Thank yeah. you, scripture mastery. Yeah. So they would do like a scripture from that. And, uh, and then they would, you know, say a prayer. And I said, you know, you, you Mormons are the weirdest people, right? <laughs> he, and Mike, Mike was just, Mike is still just the, the kindest, gentlest guy you ever meet. He says, Loki, and he was a convert from Catholicism. So that's why I really respected him. He said, Loki, have you ever heard of the Last Supper? I said, well, of course. He said, this might be yours. <laughs> Needless to say, I never made a snide remark like that again in front of Mike. Oh, that is hilarious. But, Lucky, that's great. Johnny comes home, and uh, literally from his mission that night, him and I are talking. And I, I said, you know, look, I don't, I don't know the Book of Mormon yet. You know, uh, Prove to me what you know through the Bible, because I know the Bible. And, and he did. I mean, he cracks open mm. Hebrews. He's talking about. I said, like, "What about this? Like, you know, you got like like twenty levels of heaven." He goes, three degrees of glory." Okay, let me tell you about this. And it's in <laughs> Hebrews, matter of fact. I'm like, "What?" And all these things. So uh, he really lays it out for me, and and then we start meeting with the missionaries, and we're going through all of this, and and then uh, Zane Kirby says to me, "You know, have you prayed yet?" I'm like, "Prayed? Well, you know, if, if it's all true or not? You know, Moroni, right?" I'm like, "Oh, okay." So. I was like, oh, I guess I will. Um, yeah. So I was, I was, I was. It was in May. I was, you know, at, at home. No one's around. I'm on the couch, um, you know. And I said, you know, I was reading a little bit from the Book of Mormon and stuff. And I was like, you know, I'm just, I go pray about this. So I go down to the basement, you know, make sure no one can see me praying because you know, I want you know, people think I'm weird. <laughs> of course. And I pray, and nothing happens. I'm like, mm. hmm, okay. I, I, I'm literally one of those guys who expects the the heavens to open up, you know, something. Yeah, you're you know. expecting you're expecting Moroni to come down and talk. Oh, yeah, angels yeah. and the choirs of and course. the full night, you know, <laughs> of course, right? Yeah. You know, and, and nothing. Uh, so I, I pray again. I, I, wanted, I didn't want to be blasphemous, but I'm like, well, maybe I did it wrong, so let me pray again. Because, you know, you don't want to offend God with, you know, you know praying twice <laughs> for the same sure. thing. So yeah. this is my Catholicism, right? So... Nothing happens. Like, huh, all right. So I go back upstairs. I'm, I'm laying that back down on the couch, kind of disappointed. And I feel this sort of weight on me. 
it really almost felt like like a physical weight just kind of building up on my chest. And I looked over at the Book of Mormon, and for the first time, I had happened to put the Book of Mormon on top of my Bible. And for the first time, they just kind of, they looked like they, they belonged together, the two sticks. Oh, wow. Very cool. I open up the Book of Mormon, and I start reading, you know, the, the testimony of the three witnesses. And the, these the names all just sort of, all of a sudden started sounding very familiar to me. Awesome. And the Book of Mormon, as I started kind of going through the pages again, started reading like the Bible. Now the Bible is very confusing to me compared to the Book of Mormon. But at that point, the Bible was very clear language-wise because it was what I was used to. Yeah. But it, it, it read like the Bible. It felt natural. Uh, and you know, I laid, ba- laid back down on the couch again. And literally, it just, it just felt like a weight had just come off and that I was free for the first time. Oh, lovely. That's such a great story. That's amazing. So, you know, I, I meet my wife the next year. And it uh, didn't work out with the sister, but uh, met the wife, you know, my wife the next year and you know, got married. One part I didn't tell you is that my mom really struggled with the idea of me getting baptized because, you know, to her, you know, Mormons were racist because blacks right, are the priests. Yeah, sure. And the person sitting next to my mother in the photo, one of the people is, is John Salter, who is a Native American, grew up mm. in northern Arizona. Uh, and he knew about that struggle and he sent a letter and because John and I would talk a lot. We were really good friends. And he sent a letter to my mother saying, Joan, I grew up with you. I grew up with Mormons. Um, they're good people. Nothing but good can come from this. And when, wow. and when, when her professor, John Salter said that she was fine. Now, Loki, that's amazing. That is awesome. Now, John was never supposed to be at the lunch counter and neither was my mother and neither one was supposed to be in Mississippi, but when they were, but they were both told by other people, well, if you're going to go, why don't you go to Mississippi? So they both go to Mississippi. He ends up being a professor at the college that my mother gets accepted into. They both end up at the lunch counter together. And the Mm. one person who could convince my mother that it was an okay thing (laughs) <laughs> on the same day I actually ended up getting baptized. If that's not the Lord working, I mean, come on, that's awesome. That's Loki, to, that's amazing. To me, that's, that's, you know, the, 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 the fingerprint, the handprint of the Lord in your life. He knows you and he's got a plan for you and he knows it before you're even here. Yeah. And, and, and it, yeah, I mean, you can't deny, I, I can't deny that at least. So last week on the show, we had uh, Lincoln Hoppe on the show. Who wonderful, wonderful human being. Plays one of the, the funniest roles in Believe. Oh, my gosh. But uh, how did Believe, how did your film Believe come to be? Because, And by the way, we've been talking so much about civil rights and about spiritual things. About Believe is none of this. Despite no. the name Believe, nothing to do with civil rights, nothing to do with faith. <laughs> but just a really great comedy movie. And I think it's on... Is it on, it, maybe it's on Amazon Prime. It's on, or it's on Amazon, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I watched it literally just about three months ago. Such a funny movie. How did that end up happening? Um, you know, I had written a couple of screenplays, and, um, you know, I just believed, actually. It was quite, you know. Um, yeah, I really wanted to get a movie made. And the owner of a company I worked for, they had sold the company. They made a bunch of money. Um, <laughs> you know, we're all losing our jobs. And... Um, 
but he he for whatever reason you know decided that he says you know Loki what's what's your dream? Hmm. I said to make a movie. He's like, all right, let's do it. I had no idea. I put down two scripts in front of him. One was about you know kind of like a close encounter of third kind type thing, and the other one was believe. Well, I had no idea that 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 um, that his that he had this. Uh, massive love hate relationship with with network marketing because his dad was a network marketer who owned an actual company and stuff and uh, mm. in his youth and uh, just couldn't stand it so he's like yeah we're doing this one um, <laughs> he greenlit the whole thing and so I got together with Kaleidoscope Pictures you know uh, you know um, gosh uh, Russ Kendall and Mike Merrill and, and sure Adam Anderig who did Charlie yeah. Uh, this great, wonderful group of people who, you know, helped shepherd that along. And, you know, and Ryan Little was the DP, the director of photography for the film. And, and, uh, it was just, awesome. a, it was literally my first movie. Um, and really my first, you know, professional project period. Um, that must've been really daunting. It was because there was films that were coming out before that, that I was just like, Oh my gosh, my idea is just going to be a train wreck. Um, it, it's got kind of the sort of mini cult following, you know, after all these years, um, you know, we, the, 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 the market in Utah died with church ball, you know, um, yeah, sure. Before our film came out. And, and so it was like, uh, yeah, it was unfortunate, yeah. but it's a great film. And for our listeners, go check it out. It's on Amazon prime. It's a great, great movie. Yeah. The irony um, is I actually worked for a network marketing company after that film came out for seven years. <laughs> The owner of the company was like, "Hey, by the way, I saw your movie." And I'm like, "I'm <laughs> like, okay, this, this is why I'm getting fired." He's like, "I was like, what'd you think?" He goes, "I thought it was hysterical." I was oh, like, that's "Oh, great. what did your family think?" He says, "Oh, I'm not showing them." But he's like, <laughs> and I wasn't even. In, I, was, I was working in accounting. He's like, "Why are you in accounting?" I was like, "What's what you guys hired me to do?" He says, "Well, can you can you make videos for us like you did Believe?" I said, "Oh yeah, let's do that." Um, and, you know, that was, that was a great success for him. He actually ended up being the, uh, um, he knew I was working on a documentary and wanted to do this film about my mother. And, yeah. uh, yeah, he actually, yeah. So, um, he, he funded the documentary. Wow. Um, he, he just knew that this was, you know, as much as I had done for them over this, over those number of years and stuff, he, he's like, I, you know, I want to do something for you. And, uh, that became the catalyst for everything else since then. Tell us about your, your documentary work. Yeah, so my first film was documentary was uh, An Ordinary Hero. It's about the life of my mother in the civil rights movement. And my my mom is is this is the Forrest Gump of civil rights. I mean, she was she has no idea what that is, by the way. Uh, you know, I was I actually asked her today. She was asking me, and, and, you know, can you send me the link again to that video you did? I was like, Mom, just copy and paste it. She goes, I don't know how. I was like, Mom, what do you mean you don't know how? She goes, Well, look. I, I can do Zoom. Be happy with that. Just send me the link. I'm like, okay, mom. <laughs> was she comfortable with you making this movie, or did she? How'd she react? <laughs> so, it it wasn't until the screening of the film at the Smithsonian, the very first screening we did, that uh, she's like, "Oh, so you made a movie about me?" <laughs> so with all with all the interviewing and everything else. She didn't right. pick up that the movie was about her? Well, because originally the film was not meant to be about her. It was meant to be about this group of people. But mm. everyone kept saying, 
You know, we've heard this story before, but we never heard your mother's. Um, and yeah, I really didn't catch on to the significance of my mom and the movement until I was doing the film. And I would ask, you know, people, I would ask you know, museums, uh, you know, libraries and such, you know, his, you know, Birmingham Civil Rights Institute, right? These sort of places, you know, um, if, if, you know, if I can use a photo, if they would do an interview and every single time without fail, it was for Joan, anything. Wow. Um, Loki, that is so, so cool. So you put it out. Did you think that was going to be kind of a one and done documentary about, about race or did that just light the fire that brought forth uh, the uncomfortable truth? You know, I, th- I thought it was going to be uh, uh, doing it. I thought it was going to be one and done. I, there's other things I wanted to do. Um, but then during the process of making that film, one of the key people who's not a key person in the film, but he's one of the key people in my life now, uh, Luvon Brown said something before the camera crew showed up. Uh, he was willing to come down from New York city to DC um, to do this interview. He said, for anybody else, I would never have done this mm. but for your mom. I'm going to do this. Um, but before the camera crew shows up, he says some things that just really, really just shocked me. Not that I didn't know it, but the way he said it, um, just made such clarity that I had to like go and, you know, research this. And that became, so as I'm making this one film, I'm researching the next film and yeah. that became the uncomfortable truth. Uh, mm. this film about the history of institutional racism in America, yeah. uh, how we got to where we are. And that film, I had gotten to a point where I didn't feel like it was going anywhere. I had already interviewed LaVon. I was writing the script. I was just like, you know what? This is, this isn't happening. Um, I didn't feel like I was bringing anything new. And so I told my mom, I said, you know, I called her up. Said, yeah, I'm just not going to make the movie. And, you know, she's a mom, right? She said, oh, you've worked so hard on it. You need to blah, blah. I'm like, mom, it's okay. Sometimes these things don't happen. You move on. She goes, well, just keep, keep trying. So, you know, I, I decided to pray, right? I mean, I do pray, but I decided, well, let me pray. But let me, let me bother God with this film. Um, yeah. You know, not that he doesn't have more important things to do, in my opinion. But uh, it's but important he doesn't. To- He's involved in the details of our lives. Right. But he knows, he, he knows it's important to me. Right. And, and what's needed. And so I prayed about it. The next day, my wife and I are on, are on a walk. And I know exactly where I was. And as clear as this conversation we're having right now, the Holy Ghost said, check your family history. Mm. And instantly... A, a, a story that I hadn't thought about in 20 years since my grandmother had passed away came back to me and the entire movie played out in an instant. I mean, just, just, I could see wow. the entire thing instantaneously. And I turned to my wife and said, the movie's done. Hmm. Um, Not amazing. Next, yeah. The next day I was like, you know, that's a check your family history. That wasn't a check. That was a, just a memory. So then I started diving into the family history and found out that our family was involved in slavery from the very beginning um, when we arrived in 1610 at Jamestown. Really? That that becomes the vehicle to tell this story so that it was no longer pointing fingers at other people. It was pointing fingers at my family. Your own family, yeah. And the story with Luvon evolved to that point. Um, and this deep connection that my mom and Luvon had, um, and the, distru- the, mistru- the, the distrust he had for of her initially, uh, mm. 
because white women in the South could get a black man killed. Yeah. Um, and how their story, you know, you know, came to be. But my mom uh, changing the course of our family history and all this stuff adding up to me joining the church and the family history that comes to, as a part of that and how that came into this film. Now, I don't talk about the church side of things in the film, no. but, but all of that energy um, becomes part of this film. And this film, this, this came out uh, a couple of years ago. Did, yeah. But just this week, uh, The Uncomfortable Truth was in the news. And mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, the nation and the world have yeah. really race. It's no longer something you can avoid or ignore or pretend it's not an issue. Right. It is front and center. And I, being a mega NBA fan, <laughs> think that you had something so unbelievably cool happen with uh, the Phoenix Suns this week. Tell us about that. Yeah, I, I had I had no idea myself. It was just I was just actually going through my news feeds on Google News, and sure enough, there's there's a story that said like the Phoenix Suns. Uh, something to the effect of like the Phoenix Suns, you know, engage in the uncomfortable truth. I'm like, why is that in quotes? The uncomfortable <laughs> truth that you use that for titles. And I'm like, wait a second. So I click on it. And sure enough, the, the coach of the, of, of the Phoenix Suns, the head coach, uh, you know, said he had seen the film a couple, three times and decided that on their non-practice day, they were going to sit down and watch this movie and have a discussion. And he actually does like his press conference and, and talks about, you know, there's this, yeah, there's this white guy, Loki Mulholland, who made this film. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. Uh, that I, is I, so awesome. And I told my mom this. She's like, wow, that's really nice. You, you're moving on up. I was like, yeah, man, if we could just get LeBron to watch it, that'd be amazing. <laughs> she says, LeBron who? Oh. <laughs> I said, uh, LeBron James? Oh, I goes, love your mom more and more all the time. <laughs> She's like, I guess he plays basketball or something. I'm like, yeah, or something, mom. Sure. Or something, you know. Yeah, just, you know. Or something, yeah, that's, and that's and, and slightly involved in race issues as well. So, yeah. oh my gosh, that is so awesome. Loki, this is, this is so cool. So this is kind of breathed, I don't want to say new life, but a different trajectory. Tell us about the uh, Joan Trumpauer Mulholland Foundation. Yeah, so when we did the film An Ordinary Hero, we did a screening at Ole Miss. This is where James Meredith... Um, you know, black, you know, black student was trying to integrate this white school yeah. and where, you know, President Kennedy called in 20,000 troops. So one kid could go to school. Amazing. Um, yeah. And so we're there, we're doing a screening of the film and um, <laughs> I always have these side stories. I apologize, but no, please go for we're it. There, and there's a screening of this other film as well as part of a film festival. And there's a film about Ross Barnett. Now he was one of the most racist governors in Mississippi and mm. in the South period. He's right up there with George Wallace and stuff. And my mom leans over and goes, you know, he's your cousin, right? I'm like, what? <laughs> Just no mom, mom drops these random bombs all the time. Oh, that's uh, so great, Loki. That's but, awesome. But we had students come up to us afterwards and they're like, we never learned any of this. I'm like, these are college educated kids. I'm like, okay, well, maybe this is Mississippi, right? You know, because, you know, it's Mississippi. Yeah. They don't, they're not going to teach about the civil rights movement. Sure. What I realized was that most people don't learn this. Yeah. And I just assumed everyone did because, well, I knew it. Um, 
you know, come to realize not everyone had the same upbringing as me. Most of this, I actually learned in my adult years. I didn't learn it in school. Right. Yeah. And, and so, um, so I created this foundation, uh, which we exist in racism through education, uh, partly to preserve my mom's story and to share that and to use her story as an example of, of, you know, of, of, of how we can make a difference. You know, mm. it's about changing your world. Um, and so uh, I took the film and, and we created a couple of kids books and which is actually a uh, Deseret book actually became the publisher of shadow mountain, one of their divisions. Um, you know, awesome. so they, 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 you know, they're distributors of that. Uh, we've been creating these other films. Uh, one of the other films we did was called black, white and us, which is about racism through the lens of transracial adoptions in Utah. Mm. And, awesome. uh, and after Selma, which is about voter suppression, um, we have another film about Maggie Rivers, which is coming out that's already finished, and another film about Emmett Till. Um, and so, what's, this, the, what's the reaction you get? I mean, do you ever get kind of a funny reaction uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. from people of going, "Hey, Loki, you're a white man, and yeah. your you know your life is dedicated to racial harmony and education and understanding." Yeah. Do you get more of a raised eyebrow from white people or from black people generally? Uh, well, most of the black people already know, you know, my background in a sense when I'm coming into a situation gotcha. anyways, yeah. from, from a speaking standpoint, because, Oh, well, he's the son of Joan. Um, you know, I'm Joan's son. Remember? Yeah. Um, it's, it's, you know, white people, you know, actually we had a screening here in Utah and someone stood up in the middle of our film and said, this is BS and walked out. Um, yeah, that was, it's, well, the film's the uncomfortable truth. It's called that for a reason. Um, you know, we're exposing a history that was rewritten by the daughters of the Confederacy. Mm. And a lot of people don't know that the history they learned is not the actual history, um, that took place. And so that, that makes it very uncomfortable. Um, when, when you're, you know, moving someone's cheese. If I go to you and I say, Loki, you, you follow all this stuff. You're so involved in it. What's one thing I can do? White man living in Linden, white family, middle class, you know, whatever. What can, what can I do? You, you, you know, just believe, believe what you're seeing and, yeah. and, 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 and work towards that truth. Um, I, I've, you know, I, I, I love I tell that. My, my kids, you know, my kids are all grown now. You know, at least they think they are. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, they're 19 and, you know, and older. Sure. Um, but when they were growing up, I said, you know, uh, everything we do in life should be pointed towards the Heavenly Father's goal, which is to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man. Nothing we do will ever supersede that. Um, but mm. what we should be doing is working towards that. And, 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 and we can do that. It doesn't matter if you're you know, uh, you know, an engineer or, or you're flipping burgers, you know, you're a cashier, you know, worker, you can bring people closer to Christ and to heavenly father by, by sharing a smile, by, you know, a, a comforting arm, whatever it might be. Uh, and, and in my arena and what I've been doing, um, the church has been very, very straightforward about this with their essays. President Nelson has been very straightforward about it. Racism is a sin. Yeah. Sin separates us from Heavenly Father, which is contrary mm. to what Heavenly Father wants to bring to pass immortality and eternal life of man. Um, 
It's so I, I, I do what I do because I believe in it. And I also believe that um, we all have, a, this is my mission, that uh, I, I can help people by informing them and to overcome their biases, that racism. Um, and most people aren't out there burning crosses and using, dropping the N-word on people and doing this you know, crazy stuff that we see. But we do, there's a lot of things we do do that we need to be aware of that yeah. hurts our fellow man. And if these are, which, if we truly believe that everyone is our brother and sister, which they are, then we should be treating them that way. That doesn't mean we're always going to get along because we don't get along with all of our brothers and sisters. But we should be treating them as children of God, just like we would want to be treated, going back to what my mom would say from the golden rule, right? Mm, that, that, I love it. That, that guided her. And so uh, it's, it's about you know, overcoming the natural man um, and going beyond ourselves, overcoming our fears, going back to what Ruby Bridges said, um, in, in drawing closer unto Christ, that by by overcoming that bias and by really working hard to do that um, and to listen more than anything, there's in, in, in Black, White, and Us in the, in the film we did, um, the, uh, at the end of the film, this, this guy says, you know, look, uh, he was talking to his friend, um, I think Glenn Singleton, who's a co-author of a book, a black guy from Baltimore, and this guy saying, I'm a white guy from Utah. What do I do? What do I do to end racism? Right? And, in, and his friend, his black friend says, believe me. Mm. Just believe me. When I tell you that something happened, don't try to qualify it. Don't try to justify it. Just listen. Wow. And, and believe. Um that's what we need to be doing right now. And that's, yeah. that's, that's where these films come in. And my mom's example of being willing to go against her narrative that she was brought up with of segregation, that black people were less. She said, wait a second, but we're all children of God and we should treat each other that way. And she just couldn't you know, rectify those two. And so she chose what was right, even though it wasn't easy, which was to follow what the Savior had said. And that's what we need to do. Logan, this is also powerful. I want to make sure we get a plug in for how can people see, like if they want to watch The Uncomfortable Truth or if they want to see Black, White, and Us. Yeah. Uh, where, where can people find your films? Uh, well, they can find all the films on Amazon. Um, awesome. You know, the four, there's, well, I guess five. Um, yeah. And they can go to our website, um, JTM. Joan Trumpower Mall and jtmfoundation.org. They're available there on DVDs. There's the books. You can get the books at Deseret as well. And the um, books are called She Stood for Freedom. Correct. And, yeah. and uh, we have a sustainer model of for donations. We are a foundation where, where we do provide a, a $5 monthly donation, and we're able to provide curriculum for 30 students, uh, teaching them about the civil rights movement, how to be civically engaged and civically minded people. And these are all great resources for me and for all of us. Loki, I so appreciate it. We're going to wrap up the conversation uh, with the question that we ask all of our guests, and that is, what does being a member of the church mean to you? It means everything to me. Uh, it, it's, yeah, I, I think of the word peace. I think of love. I, I, um, you know, it's, it, it's, I tell people a lot of times, I wish you could have seen me before I joined the church. 
you know, I had the yeah. long hair. I used to drink and everything else. I don't have hair anymore, but <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm, an, I'm an example of what the church can do in someone's life. Uh, you know, it's a 180. Remember, Johnny Keegan said, Dad, I think Loki's the last guy on the face of the earth that will ever get baptized. Here's my best <laughs> friend, and that's what he thought of me. Uh, and yet uh, it transformed and changed. didn't just change my life. It changed my eternity. Mm. That's what it means to me. I love it. He is an author. He is a filmmaker. He is the son of an activist, and he is an activist. And he is proudly carrying uh, his family's flag forward and doing amazing work. Loki Mulholland, thank you so much for sharing your Latter-day Life with us. We appreciate it. Thank you. Appreciate it. And my special thanks to my guest, Loki Mulholland. What an amazing guy. I so enjoyed that conversation. I could have I could have sat there for five hours talking to him. I think he has such an important message. And uh, again, thank you so much, Loki. We appreciate it. This week in my Latter-day Life, uh, all this discussion on race issues got me thinking to a few months back uh, when I was still traveling a lot. Uh, seems like forever ago. But I was passing through Atlanta on my way home. And uh, I got to sit in the Delta Sky Club. They give me one of those free memberships for flying a lot. And it's kind of nice. You get food and, you know, Wi-Fi, whatever. And I was sitting doing some emails. And there were three people sitting across from me talking. And I wasn't right in their circle, but I was close enough that I could hear what they were talking about. And as they were speaking to each other, one of the men started speaking in uh, some of the most racially vulgar terms I have ever heard. He started really saying some things that were truly repulsive and reprehensible and just unacceptable as he was talking to his two buddies. And the other two guys didn't say a word. They just sat there listening, kind of nodding. And it made me so sick. I knew I needed to go over and say something. I needed to say, excuse me, you can't talk like that, please. You know, and again, I was thinking to myself, you don't have to be rude, but you need to go say something. And so I mustered up whatever courage I had. I stood up and I walked to a different corner of the room where I couldn't hear him anymore. And I sat down and in my head, I justified my actions with all the justifications as we do. I don't want to start a scene. There are three of them. I don't know how they're going to react. Uh, it's not my business. Hey, at least I'm not listening to it anymore. All of these things. And then I went and I got on my airplane and halfway through my flight, I started thinking about how disappointed I was in myself that here was a great opportunity to stand up. And again, I didn't have to be rude. Someone just needed to tell him that they found it totally vile and reprehensible. He needed to hear it. And for racism to continue, all that I have to do is to continue to do nothing. That's all it takes, is to turn my back and to say, well, you know, he wasn't talking to me or justify it in whatever way. And on that flight on the way home, I was so disappointed that uh, I made a promise to myself that that would never happen again, that I would never let that happen again, that I was going to call out racism when I see it. And I'm not suggesting that everybody should put themselves in harm's way. I'm talking about for myself. And I'm certainly going to look at the situation and try to approach it the best way that I can, but I'm just not going to let it stand. And that is what I have promised myself because the men I respect most, the women I respect most, that's what they do. 
Jesus Christ said, as I have loved you, love one another. And the way that we love one another is to stand up for each other. And I can stand up for people of other races, even if they're not there. That is how I show them love. And that is how I can help. And we all need to do everything that we can. But I committed to myself that day. I'm so grateful that the church is making such strides and doing such good things in, in this area. Their meetings with the NAACP were historic and were just awesome. And the donations that they've made to so many good organizations that fight against racial injustice. We are all brothers and sisters. And it is my job to stand up for uh, all of my brothers and sisters, every one of us, regardless of skin color, regardless of anything else. As I have loved you, love one another. And that's what's happening this week in my Latter-day life. Thank you so much for tuning in again this week. We sure appreciate it. If you have a moment and could leave us a five-star review, there is nothing that helps us more than that. Helps people to find the show. We really appreciate it. We invite you to follow us on social media. If you want to get a hold of me directly, uh, I can be reached at Sean at LatterdayLives.com. That's S-H-A-W-N at LatterdayLives.com. I think that's about all we got for you this week. So until we meet again, there is a great big beautiful world out there. So go be in it, just not of it. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.